The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Support for this show comes from the Four Winds Society, offering the world's most thorough training in the philosophy and practice of shamanic energy medicine, combining ancient wisdom teachings with cutting-edge neuroscience. Learn how you can begin your journey at thefourwinds.com. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. My guests today are John Donvan, and Karen Zucker. Their new book is In a Different Key, The Story of Autism. John is a correspondent for ABC News and host and moderator of Public Radio's Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. He is a past anchor of ABC's Nightline and has served as chief White House correspondent. He's the winner of three Emmys and the Overseas Press Club Award. Karen is a journalist and television producer with both domestic and international experience. As a producer for ABC's Nightline, she's covered economic summits, presidential campaigns, and the Olympics. Her work with ABC in covering the horror of 9-11 earned her two of television's most prestigious prizes, the Peabody and the Alfred DuPont Award. So, Karen and John, thank you very much for joining us on Essential Conversations. Thanks, Rami. Thanks for having yeah, us. Thanks for having us. The book is really important. I mean, the topic is really important, but the way you handle it is is really unique, I think. And I I want to start out by just noting the fact that you both come to the subject of autism from personal experience. So, Karen, your son, Mickey, was diagnosed with autism in 1996. And, John, your brother-in-law is severely autistic. But lots of people have lots of challenges and don't investigate them as profoundly as the two of you have. So I'm wondering if you can tell us, if, if, if there is one, but what the deeper motivation for educating the world about autism is. Well, it really is, uh, as, as you say, Rami, it's personal for both of us. But we're also journalists. I think a lot of it has to do with the timing of Karen's son Mickey being diagnosed back in the 1990s. We had been working together as a team just doing regular reporting in general and, um, you know, lots of stories, civil rights and things like that. And then Mickey was diagnosed as a very little boy. Karen, he was three years old. Is that correct? Two, two and a half? Yeah, two and a half, yeah. And I said to Karen, after learning that she had, you know, really uh, focused on trying to do everything she could for her son, including a program which meant that he was working with therapists for 40 hours a week and that that was really driving, in a lot of ways, the shape of the household and, and her life as well. I said, why don't we do a story in the day of the life of your son, Mickey? And she said, well, Karen, you should pick it up. That's a great idea. 
except that um, I'm a journalist. I don't want to be, so we'll just do my son. And Don said, well, we can't really do a story about child with autism without talking to his mom. So we went to Plan B, which was um, we went to the network, and we asked them if they would do a show autism and at the time it was we did a half hour broadcast on applied behavior analysis networks ever did anything on autism in fact it was nightline who allowed us and gave us that kind of to do a story on autism it was still very new it was very underreported and it was the very first what would be you know a decade of journalism that John and I covering autism and covering not the story that would catch your attention and sensational but the story perhaps educate um not just the autism community but the layman about what it was to be autistic, what what kind of treatments there were, what kind of educational um, skills. There were girls, that there were siblings, that there were all these different spectrum that didn't just involve the person who had autism. You know, we decided after after a couple of years of, well, four or five years of doing television, that the work was great, but that a book would be more enduring. And that's why we Mm -hmm. decided to do a book. And we looked into the past because the story of autism's past was largely untold. And we hoped that we would find in it inspiration for the future, and we have. We think that the book shows how how far we've come uh, in the acceptance of people with autism and to some degree in the understanding of autism, and that that will serve as inspiration to be even more accepting of people who are different by virtue of the neurological wiring in the future. I tell you, when I was looking at the book, reading the book, I was shocked, and but, but not really surprised, but, but really thrown a little bit to read in the book that not, it wasn't too long ago that children's a, a child's autism was thought to be caused by his or her mother what was going on with that well it was really quite extraordinary the at the time psychiatrists what psychiatrists said was you know the law and they had uh, Bruno Bettelheim as he promoted this theory um, he also promoted a, a psychologist when in fact he was a psychologist uh, he had a PhD in art history um, but he he said that mothers the blame children's autism they were cold and unloving and this was extraordinarily painful to families. You know, I, I interviewed um, mothers who who were just devastated. They already had this their child beat for it, and the, the only way they could help their child, they were told, was they were the to get analyzed and figure out what was wrong with them. So these mothers, I'd, I'd spent hours. They really remember just sort of trying to get through their heads. What did I do? What could I have done to him? There was one mother that I spoke to. One day, like a light bulb went, oh my God, my son, I thought, had jaundice, so he was yellow. He had this blonde hair standing up, and he looked like a chicken. And I and I said, I thought my child looked like a chicken, and I must have caused his autism by oh thinking my. that way. And here were these parents, they're, they're thinking, well, if I can figure out what I did wrong, I can fix it. And it was sort of tragedy upon tragedy. Um, and that that's what the world believed. And and so what we did is we did nothing to learn, you know, scientifically what were the causes or what were the treatments. Because if the answer was fixing the mother, we didn't have to do anything else. And we lost, yeah. you know, decades in that. Well, let, and this is what, back in the 60s? Its origins are in the late 1940s, about four or five years after the diagnosis was first coined. And it persisted probably probably with some power still into the 1970s. And, and remarkably, in France, it's still a very powerful concept. It's still, still today. Still, yeah. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Not mm-hmm. everywhere, but it's, it's... I mean, why specifically in France? France has a very deep tradition of psychoanalysis, and psychoanalysis um, has, is, first of all, uh, while we're not dismissing psychoanalysis as a, as a useful therapy for some people, it's not very based in science. Um, it's not something that's tested. 
and um, and it's one that that relies very much on the idea that um, mental illness results from life's traumas as opposed to mental illness results from imbalances in brain chemistry, which has become much more of the sort of uh, the sort of concept here. Of course, the, of course, both things are involved, but in uh, in Paris, the psychoanalytic and the like tradition is still strong and still holds that that something must have happened in the child's life, young life, that made the child want to withdraw from the mother. So what is the current thinking on causes of, of autism? Well, we know for sure that there is a genetic component. The problem is, is we don't have enough answers in terms of the science to figure out how we can do anything about that to help treat, help children recover. But we also believe that there's a, an environmental uh, aspect to it, very little about And it may just not be one environment, just like autism, many sort of different isms. If you look at people with autism, the spectrum is so huge, they're so different, that um, we're not sure that they're all exactly the same. But they all seem to follow fall under a single rubric? Does that, does that make, does it hold? Does it, it make sense? It, right now, the answer to that question is yes. And the reason I say right now is that, and this is something we learned when we started working on the book, we sort of figured from the beginning that everybody in the field who talked about autism through the last 80 decades was talking about the same thing, and they meant the same thing, and that turns out not to be true. And that's because autism itself really is is very subjectively observed and defined. There's no blood test for autism. There's no biological marker. Autism is diagnosed solely by somebody who is considered an expert watching a person's behaviors asking questions, and then deciding whether that person fits a profile. And the profile has changed dramatically um, over the years. And so it's very, very difficult to say that, for example, there's been an autism epidemic because you would have to be comparing the present to the past. But the past had different definitions. And sometimes the definition was very inclusive and sometimes it was very, very narrow. So even this, this question of nailing down what it is we mean by autism, what is that profile, is, is a very shaky question in itself. Right now, the definition that most people believe in is this concept of the spectrum that's very, very broad. But the spectrum idea is only about 25 years, 30 years old, and only really gained popularity in the last 20 years, and only became enshrined in the, uh, in the DSM, which is the um, American Psychiatric Association's Handbook of Mental Disorders, only became enshrined in that in approximately 2000, this idea of the spectrum. Um, and, and very, very broadly means that, there's, that the person to some degree or maybe to a great degree has trouble with communication and social relatedness and a tendency to, to have a, ten, a tendency for repetitive routines or very, very narrow interests. But we're not sure that, for example, we're not going to, as Karen said, discover ultimately that the spectrum needs to be broken into little parts again or some parts as we discover that there might be multiple kinds of multiple autisms. You know, this has happened many times already. Asperger's syndrome, for example, was th was there. It was in the textbooks put in in 1994, and then it was taken out again in 2013. So these definitions are very, very soft, and it's difficult, therefore, to say that there's just one overall art arching rubric that's going to stand for all time. Now, even... Uh even the word spectrum just sounds like something that people are using to link uh, what, what may be completely, completely different phenomenon. 
Exactly, it, it may be. And that's why Karen will tell you the most famous saying in autism really captures this. Well, if, you, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. And, mm. and you can see that, you know, almost black and white in, in the ways that on one end of the spectrum, there might be somebody who's really severely disabled and communicate, unable to care for themselves, unable to lead an independent life. And then, you know, along the spectrum are, you know, different steps along the way. And on the very far end on the other side might be a, a professor who's, is you know has the skills to be able to you know run a classroom socially you know function or somebody who has you know their masters but is bagging groceries because they're not capable of holding a job you you mentioned Karen earlier about potential environmental causes what, what do, you, do you have specifics in mind that people are exploring or i think that is really still very uh, much unknown and that that science is looking into all sorts of things, but right now we have any answers. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When I was talking to some people about this who know nothing, I, I put that right out front. These are because people I was talking to, and I, several people told me, no, it's diet. It's always diet. Is there anything with food that uh, can be linked to this? Not definitively in any way at this point. That said, a lot of kids with autism have, um, particularly if their autism is severe, have comorbid um, gastrointestinal problems like severe diarrhea, um, eating issues where there's very little that they, they'll want to eat. So this has suggested that there, you know, the, the diet connection might be an area worthy of further investigation. But a lot of people have gone, you know, from the sort of the, the lay community has gone way down the road in some of this. And they've constructed special diets and marketed special diets for children with autism, which um, on an individual basis, fa some families will swear that they've helped. But when they're tested on sort of large controlled trials, larger control of these trials are very large for larger control trials, do not tend to hold up. So the diet question is controversial, but it's something certainly that people are taking seriously as an avenue of research. And on the other side of that is if you have a child who does have some kind of stomach condition and you're able to take care of that through diet, they're no longer you know, struggling from whatever stomach uh, intestinal issues they might have had. You know, of course, their behaviors are... So there, there may be a link to that as not having anything to do with the autism, the thing that's actually sick. How difficult is it to do research when people are so easily spooked? So I'm just thinking about autism and vaccination. And that, you know, well, John and I have done, you know, we're journalists. And so we we decided very early on the, the way that we're going to look at the science, and it's not a huge part of our book, but the vaccine you do cover at length, mm -hmm. is that 
we're going to go by the science. You know, when the whole vaccine issue first started, we were very, you know, nobody knew exactly if it was true or not, and research was done and studies were What we learned was that vaccines don't cause autism. Sort of standing by the science, does, does that mean that that sometimes something, nothing, 100% anything, but uh, the science has told us that vaccines... I thought that was, the whole issue was connected to some faulty study that was done. It was launched. It was launched by a, a study that ultimately was retracted by the British Medical Journal, which was published in 1998. It took about uh, 12 years before it was tra- retracted. And that's despite the fact that the original scientist stands by the study, and he has lots of people who believe he was right, and the victim of a conspiracy theory to hide the truth. And, and so, the, you know, the, the, the minute a kind of conspiracy theory leaps up in the face of science, it, it probably actually works against the credibility of that of that idea. Um, so, yeah, there was a doctor named Andrew Wakefield, who was British, who launched this idea with a study back in 1998. But investigative reporters, particularly one in particular named Brian Deere in London, uh, looked very deeply and found that Dr. Wakefield was, um, was his, his results had been tampered with and that he had um, uh, financial conflicts of interest. And ultimately, the medical journal with great embarrassment, retracted the article entirely and said that if they'd known any of this, they wouldn't have published it in the first place. But once Wakefield kind of kicked things off, he was by far from the only person who began making claims that science was actually backing the vaccine theory when the the overwhelming majority of the scientific reports was refuting it. So how frustrating is it as journalists to you know, try to try to bring out what we know as truth so far, you know, based on scientific evidence, scientific fact, and to have this whole pushback from conspiracy theorists or I mean, the whole notion of, of truth is called into question in the society in a way that makes it very difficult to even talk about scientific fact. I mean, do you get frustrated, not, not just maybe with your work on, uh, you know, in the in the book in a different key, but maybe just in your work as journalists, you're up against this sea of faux fact that people are as happy to jump on as they are truth. We kind of came to the conclusion that um, there are many kinds of truth, and we we made an effort to be respectful to everybody who's involved in this autism issue, even if they have conflicting versions of the truth, because at bottom, all of the families involved and all the individuals involved Autism is a disability, and at some level, everybody is struggling. And so if there's a family that believes and is absolutely convinced that their child was um, harmed by a vaccine and the vaccine caused autism, while we will absolutely want to report that um, the preponderance, the overwhelming amount of science refutes the claim that the family is making, we do not want to be disrespectful to that family's belief in their own version of the truth. We did not want to mock them. We did not We did not call them ignorant. In fact, a lot of these families are, are quite well educated and quite sophisticated. And we recognize that in a number of cases, the families who, who, who still hold to the concept that vaccines cause their child's autism, they, they witness and experience something that's very convincing to them. And that thing is that their child was in many cases, as far as they could tell, developing as he or she was expected to to about the age of two and a half. And at about the age of two and a half, the child got a vaccine. And shortly after that, that's important, the timing to that, autism began to manifest itself. And the kid who could speak started to be unable to speak. And that's very, very compelling first-person experience sure. and testimony. And, and, and you can tell that person, and the scientists can tell that person, 
but your child your child was going to regress anyway because there is a large percentage of children with autism. It's called regressive autism. It first really begins to manifest or to be noticed uh, at about that age when when milestones are to be hit and they're not. We we do not want to we we, we do not want to belittle in any way that sure. person's experience and conviction. And that now that doesn't mean that we think that we need to be writing a book that says we think that they're right because we think the science weighs up on the other side. So where it gets frustrating is all too often nobody really appreciates our our efforts in trying to respect their experience because we do in the end report that the science comes down against. And that's frustrating because um, the autism community, not just on but on many, many issues, is incredibly riven by dissension. Uh, and this is but one of them. It's not as prominent as it was, say, five or six or seven years ago partly because the media has walked away from the vaccine story. And 10 years ago, the media was very excited about the vaccine story. Okay, we are just about out of time, and there's so much more I'd like to know about this. And I'm sure our listeners would, too, and you can certainly learn more from the book. But, Karen, either each of you or if you want to just uh, one of you can do this. Is there one thing that we could leave the listener with if they're concerned about yeah, this problem? Yeah, let, 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 let me take that because... First of all, I do I do want listeners to know there are amazing stories in the book. We spent an awful lot of time after Karen tracked down the first child with autism and found him now as an old man in a little town in Mississippi who's had a fantastic, wonderful outcome in life because his community wrapped itself around him. And we tell stories of a girl who grew up with a brother who was an institution and her mother had said, never tell anybody that your brother is an institution. And in her 80s, she went and found him and got him out of that institution. And of parents who, whose children were barred from public schools who fought to get them into public. And of scientists working on therapies. And there's an awful lot of inspiration uh, throughout, throughout the book and stories that we dug up that we think are mostly unknown. But the, the thing that, there's a story we tell at the end of the book a very short little scene, but really important to us. It's, a, it's something that happened on a bus in New Jersey in 2007. Um, a young man was riding on the bus by himself near the front, and he had autism, and he was not somebody who could speak using words. He was making some, some loud noises, and he was rocking back and forth, and he was flipping his fingers in front of his face. And when this happened, two guys sitting behind him got really agitated and irritated at what he was doing, and, and they began to harass him. And they said to him, hey, man, like, what's your problem? Just cut it out. What's, what's with you, you weirdo? Stop that. And then all of a sudden, and, this other passenger jumps up out of his seat and says, you know, he's got autism. What's your problem? Why don't you shut up? And the rest of the bus stood up behind him. And to support the man, the young man with autism, and support the rider who said, you know, get the bullies off the bus. And and that's that's our goal, and that's that's our message throughout the book really is to embrace people and accept people who are different and that and that happened on the bus that day and it it can happen anywhere if we if we choose to make it happen well that that's a fantastic motto get the bullies off the bus and a, and a great way to end so thank you very much for sharing thanks, a Robert. little bit of of your your wisdom on this it was really fascinating thanks for, thank you so for much. having us my guests today were John Donvan and Karen Zucker. Their new book is In a Different Key, The Story of Autism. You can learn more about their work at inadifferentkey.com. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Support for this show comes from the Four Winds Society. 
offering the world's most thorough training in the philosophy and practice of shamanic energy medicine, combining ancient wisdom teachings with cutting-edge neuroscience. Learn how you can begin your journey at www.thefourwinds.com. Essential Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of A Guided Life podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.